Never before have companies adopted digital transformations at such a rapid pace. But as the speed of those digital agendas are accelerated, should engineers and software developers around the globe be the ones responsible for protecting your data? We would look at privacy as the tools or the layer of the system in terms of business logic that ensure that data is collected, processed, and used in a way that is ethical and respectful of the user who gave permission to use that information. So a huge part of that is security. You can't possibly be handling a user's data with respect if you're not securing it as a fundamental tenant to that. That's Killian Kieran, CEO and co-founder of Ethica, a company focused on helping enterprises with managing their privacy concerns by automating the process. Killian joined IT Visionaries to discuss a host of topics. One was how companies can protect their users through simple design functions. Plus, he talked about the confusion between security and privacy and why an autonomous digital presence may never exist again. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. Today, we have Killian Kieran. He is the CEO and co-founder of a data privacy company called Ethica. Killian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Albert. All right, right out the gate, we always got to know what exactly is Ethica? Of course. So... Ethica is essentially like Stripe for data privacy. That sounds a little bit glib, but what it really means is developer tools to automate data privacy compliance. So, you know, when we think of data privacy compliance, you've got the GDPR in Europe. Most recently, you've got the CCPA, which is the California Consumer Privacy Act here in, in, well, in California, here in the US. And these are regulations that make specific obligations on businesses that collect and process data effectively. And so if you are a data-driven business collecting customer information, you've got to comply with these regulations. Ethica plugs into your systems to automate that process so you don't have to build any custom tools. So explain for me what that is. So let's say, for example, I want to, I'm a software developer or I'm a business and I'm going to develop a new consumer application. I mean, if, even if you capture someone's name in their email record, aren't you required by some level of data security, privacy protection? I'm sure there's some requirements on me, but explain to me what it is that Ethica does at a technical level that I don't have to worry about because like right now I would think that let's say I'm developing a simple app on, let's say one of the cloud service providers, I might use their data storage system uh, to secure the user records in a table. And I would just rely maybe on the cloud services to protect that because they have, you know, things you can spin up for protection or I might use a third party vendor. What exactly does Ethica do? Sure. A good way to think about it is this sort of a, maybe a, like a global superset of, of sort of business logic or business requirements for data privacy regulations. So what I mean is whether you're thinking of Europe or the US or like Brazil's new privacy laws, there are a bunch of things that businesses have got to do with data. So the first of those is you've got to understand what personal information you collect as a business. So like you give the example there of emails and names. Most businesses collect emails and names and maybe some other data about their users, behavioral information, for example. You've got to understand where that exists. So like you've collected it, where you store it, how you process it, who in your business has access to that data, and what you use it for. That's often called a data map or an inventory assessment. Most businesses do that manually, right? So basically, they have a spreadsheet, they audit, like, you know, they analyze schema for storage systems, they audit third-party vendors, they generate this sort of 
you know, bird's nest view of where data sits in the organization. Like I said, call it data map. In the case of Ethica, we automate this. So we plug into data infrastructure. So structured storage systems, unstructured key value stores, document stores, et cetera. And we identify where categories of personal information exist. That's the first step in data privacy. Once you know where the information is, as a business, you're legally on the hook for how you manage that information on behalf of the users for whom you collected it. So for example, in California, you have the right to say, hey, and I'm not going to pick a business we all know, so I'll just say, hey, e-commerce provider that I bought products from, <laughs> give me the data that I bought or give, give me the data uh, that you have about me. So it's in California called the right to know. In Europe, they call it the right to access. So you're allowed to say to that business, hey, give me a copy of what you've got about me. The business is about 45 days to collect all of the information it has about you and return it to you in some readable form. Now, that sounds easy, but if you think about even uh, you know, a small high-growth startup and you think of the sort of distributed nature of data infrastructure, you might have a transaction database, data warehouse, you probably have a bunch of SaaS vendors, data's flowed into all of those. You've got to retrieve and categorize and collect all of that information. A user also has the right to say, hey, delete me completely, so the right to be forgotten or the right to be erased. And again, you've got to be able to understand where that information is and erase a user. Again, I won't name them, but we have customers that have, you know, not one or two of these requests a week, but kind of 15 or 1600 of these a month. And so doing this manually would be a mechanical Turk, right? Like you'd have engineers dedicated to just looking up users by identity, matching records across systems, you know, through foreign keys, and then erasing the data security. And that's just the basic of data privacy. Then it gets more complicated thresholds around access control, data entitlements, et cetera. All right, you're bringing me back to the horror days of back when I worked in enterprise software and we were selling yes. <laughs> software to other companies. And in the RFPs, inevitably, they would ask you, you know, some level of data security protection, what your policies, procedures. And I remember because they would ask very specific questions. And then I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to make this report. Like it took it took like feats of lots of hours of labor to put together responses to this. Is that something you guys help with? Do you guys actually provide a, like a narrative almost? I don't know how it would come out, like if it's like in words or actually just chart maps, like you just kind of talked about where you actually help a customer say, hey, if you ask me or inquire about how I store data, I can just go to my system and click a button, download all the stuff I need so that you can have a, you know, a full response to an RFP question. Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, look, there's the, there's the sort of policy documents that should exist around like good behavior and security systems, right? So that's something that's got to be written by the business and ultimately signed up to by the engineers. We don't necessarily generate that documentation. What we do do is generate all of these sort of hard technical visibility of where data exists. So if you want to know what categories of information you process as a business, so what actual data you have, who has it, like, and by who has it, I mean what systems hold the information, who has access to it in the organization, that Ethica generates automatically. So the short answer is we do about 50, 60% of the hard lifting, the stuff that would take engineers running in circles to do manually, basically. So I guess this is more like a broader question of the industry. How did you get into this? How did you know this problem was worth solving for yourself? Um, did you encounter it? Like how, talk about like your past. How'd you get into this data security, privacy? It sounds more like regulatory what you're talking about, but you know, it's always curious to hear like how you found the problem really. Well, it's a, well, it's a great question, but I should say I'm definitely not on the regulatory side. So far as I'm not a lawyer by trade, my, <laughs> my background's definitely engineering. Um, so it, yeah, it was a problem I encountered. So to, to sort of put a shape on that. So my background is physics and CS, but I'm a dropout. So, you know, I went to college in Ireland, in Dublin in Ireland. I dropped out and um, I started my first business very shortly after dropping out of college. And you, back to your, you know, you thinking of your, the you know, good old days of enterprise software. My first business essentially built 
data intelligence and infrastructure tools for like legacy enterprise customers. So we used to be consulting services. So we're basically building tech on top of legacy data sets for large customers. These were like household brands, consumer packaged goods companies, large global companies collecting a lot of data, very often not very sophisticated about what they were doing with that information. And what we found, uh, you know, not intentionally, not by design, was about seven or eight years before the GDPR came into effect, general data protection regulation in Europe. Those regulations came into effect in 2018, May 2018. And about, I would say, seven years before that, we had customers like large enterprise businesses that were worried about the advent of the GDPR. Right. Because the curious thing, right, is in the tech community, I think we'd like to think that we're super agile and very cutting edge in, in terms of innovation. But ironically, when you think about regulations and compliance, we're way behind, right? Because we actually sort of ascribe to the, the model of tech startups, which is you can bend and break regulations rather than comply with them, right? And that's the sort of innovator's way. Whereas large legacy enterprise is super risk averse and thinks about this with a very long lens, right? Way into the future. And they will always plan carefully for this. So at the time, a large alcohol brand wanted to ensure that they were ready for the GDPR. And the basic solution was a mechanical Turk of consultants, right? They would hire a whole bunch of consultants. Just throw a lot of labor. Yeah, throw a lot of labor at it. Huge amounts, massive amounts of labor, right? Like a, a Sisyphus-like sort of rolling rocks and boulders up hills. And the job was never finished, right? Because like, if the business is in any way agile, building new infrastructure or new tools on top of infrastructure, the data model is continuously evolving. So you could never maintain sort of static state of visibility about where data is. And so what we found, or I found curious about that, that problem was that the GDPR, data privacy regulations, are, if you think about it, the first time that we directly have regulations that tackle the tech industry. Now, that might sound weird, but what I mean is, sure, you've got HIPAA and you have Sarbanes-Oxley. And so as a software engineer, you might come across those tangentially building technology for those industries. But data privacy regulations are fundamentally meant to be about how systems collect and process data and how they federate and regulate access to that information. Right? That, the whole point of data privacy regulations are to ensure that technology-driven businesses build safer systems. And the curiosity about that is the current solution, most of the current solutions are just consultants. So like you said, it's like a lot of manual labor on top of the system rather than fixing the underlying business issues, right? And so when I founded Ethica, the goal ultimately was to borrow, like I said, from the, you could say Stripe or Twilio playbook, right? Which is an infrastructure solution to what is clearly an engineering problem, right? Like, yes, we have regulations, but those regulations exist because we're struggling to make data A, more secure and B, more private by design in terms of how it's used. So Ethica was built to try and solve that problem or make it easier for engineers to solve that problem in their systems. No, and that's, this is a problem that's not going to go away. Like you said, you talked about like building on top of infrastructure. I mean, I think we already know that every company out there is trying to create new, let's say, digital experiences for their customers, right? Like there's always going to be something that you're going to be building that's going to, you know, from something as simple as saying happy birthday to some, an email, right? To like something more complicated, like let's say private, high-end customer user group that gets you know, first access to products and services. You're going to be transferring data, moving transaction data across. I guess what is scariest, do you think, for the enterprise? Because like you said, if you were a software engineer for, let's say, Intuit, developing tax software, you're already used to this. You're already used to the tax code changes. You got to apply, make updates to your product. You're in, let's say I work at Epic, HIPAA changes some rules, you know, or compliance. I'm, I'm used to it. I know I got to change. What is fundamentally going to be different, you think, for software engineers who do not subscribe to this idea of solving this problem? Because, I mean, I'm curious because I saw, for example, like the uh, FCC is now talking about, you know, more clarifying Section 230 inside of the bill for uh, inside the United States about like what is, you know, basically changing the requirements on data security, privacy, what can be transferred, what can be known about somebody. 
How do you think that's going to impact? I mean, to me, it seems like there's going to be more unique laws, or do you think there's going to be less? Meaning, like whole nations are going to adopt philosophies. I'm curious what you think on how data security is going to change. Is it going to be regional? It's going to be geographical, national? What's going to happen? Yeah, honestly, it's a great question, and it's. I'd love to have a perfect answer. I think what I'd say is this: the first part is that if you speak to privacy specialists, so not necessarily just engineers, but those are on the sort of policy side of this, they would say that first of all, the GDPR represents essentially the like global benchmark for what data privacy should look like. It's not to say it's a perfect law. It's very hard to draft a perfect set of regulations, but it's, it's the direction the industry's going. Yep. So if you're an engineer working in software, touching data in any way, you should assume that over the next five to 10 years, depending on the pace at which regulation unfolds by jurisdiction, that is the standard we will all ascribe to. And I, I go further, right? You know, that, that trite analogy I mentioned about like, you know, legacy companies think, being more innovative in this space. It's more difficult than that, right? Like, and we've got to recognize this as software engineers. Basically, the issue that we have, right, is software has very quickly but quietly over 30 years become central infrastructure for society. So what I mean was 30 years ago, software engineers essentially built peripheral technology, like non-critical infrastructure, right? And not, not to knock it, but like 30 years ago, we didn't build banking infrastructure, telecommunication systems. We didn't power the world. Yeah. Today, software engineers are like civil engineers, right? find me a civil engineer that would go work on a bridge wearing a t-shirt saying, move fast and break things, right? (laughs) No one crosses that bridge, right? And and while it makes for a funny anecdote, it's true, right? Like today, software engineers are going to start to be asked by governments globally to hold themselves to the same standards of other engineering disciplines because the stakes are now too high. So back to your question about, you know, how should we think about this in Planford? As individual software engineers, we need to get used to the idea that the SDLC flow, like the fundamental way we build systems, so design and implement software systems, will be changed forever because the risks are now too high. So either we change and adapt ourselves as engineers or we'll be forced to by regulations. So one of the things we talk about inside of IT Visionaries is a lot of the tra- this idea of the transformational CIO or the transformational CTO who has to not only bring, let's say, companies into modern infrastructure, modern systems, modern user interfaces, they have to select technology to support all of this. They have to be responsible for the direct P&L on these. You're saying there's going to be a new layer. You're also going to be tasked with securing it all and making sure it's impenetrable or that you can't have. For sure. You know, it's one thing I think to have like people say like cybersecurity, but then, you know, because that, what, what is it? You know, is it at the network edge? Is it inside of your systems? Do you rely on cloud to protect your existing data? Like, I think a lot of times people have deferred maybe to I don't know how people think of it, like it, because it, because I think each person has a different opinion on where they think it's most secure. You'll hear people throw the idea like, oh, just treat everything as zero trust, but then it's like, well, that just seems like you're just passing responsibilities around. Totally, um, totally. <laughs> do you like we're going with zero trust systems? Like, well, I just don't trust anybody. It's like, well, this doesn't mean your your systems are impenetrable, right? So, not at all. but you're not you're not quite in the security space. Because you're, you're not preventing the attack, but you're just identifying this is where all of your information is moving. Right. I think that the way to think about the distinction and, and transparently, this is something I've learned over the last decade of like really studying this problem as we started to tackle it at Ethica is that there is confusion between like, security and privacy and, and protection, even as yeah. terms. They're like a Venn, di- a Venn diagram of crossover. And ultimately, at the heart of a well-designed system, you've got all three, right? Great security, great protection, and great privacy. We would look at privacy as the tools or the layer of the system in terms of business logic that ensure that data is uh, collected, processed, and used in a way that is ethical and respectful of the user who gave permission to use that information. 
So a, a huge part of that is security, of course, right? You, can, you can't possibly be handling a user's data with respect if you're not securing it as a fundamental tenant of that, right? I think a, a good analogy for this, so when you talk about like zero trust and, and, and sort of like the extreme friction-filled versions of an SDLC future, the challenge there is just that, right? Is on the one hand, you're asking engineers to build safer systems, but today we're not necessarily giving them a framework to do that or like the right tools. Like the, the assembly line for manufacturing software hasn't evolved a lot in the last 30 years. Sure, we have like the idea of agility and like agile workflows and sort of Kanban and Scrum, but fundamentally what engineers do in the SDLC process hasn't changed a huge amount. And that's the issue, right? We don't have the right tools to build safer systems. So we would argue at Ethica that the solution to better systems, and, that, and by better I mean more respectful systems, is not to force engineers to follow like checkboxes and checklists, but rather to provide them with better tools in the build process that allow them to more easily build safer systems. So, you know, good, like the analogy of this is like manufacturing, automotive manufacturing, right? Cars don't roll off assembly lines without very stringent checks and balances because otherwise parts fall off and accidents happen, right? Yep. But we don't have the same controls in, in software. Sure, we have static code analysis, we have style analysis, and we have peer-based code reviews. And there's a number of sort of steps and gates in that, particularly if a business is sort of larger and SOC 2 compliant. But ultimately, it's down to a handful of engineers to self, self-sufficiently manage the SDLC. The tools need to change. We need better software systems to help engineers build better tools. Yeah, but the one thing that's unique about your analogy is, is a little different, right? Is that the engineer kind of has a very clear expected usage when it comes to a car. You know what I mean? Like, he or she knows that this car is going to be driven for, let's say, zero to 200,000 miles. It's going to speeds between zero and, you know, 80 miles an hour. It's going to see seasons. Like they kind of have a range of expectation, but software doesn't have that. The software is constantly, like you said, it's evolving, right? New technology and applications get implemented, new hackers trying to break stuff, uh, new regulations and storage are changing all the time. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. You kind of hinted on it, but I'd like to hear your ideas. How does someone, how are you, or how's anyone stay up with all this, right? Because like the problems you could face, I think are, you know, magnitudes greater than what an engineer has to solve for, for a car, like in your example, right? Because they, they kind of have a finite, like, hey, the car has to be able to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas software doesn't have that. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, okay, I got to transfer data from, or especially at the enterprise level. So if I say like, for example, my user generated collection system has to feed to my CRM, which is then going to feed my recommendation engine, that's two steps. Right. But we know in software, like that's not going to stop. Like there's going to be more systems that are going to be inserted into the chains. So, how do you think about in regards to like for your company or any company, how do you keep up with all the things that are about to change? And also, like you said, penetration testing, right? Like, or, or penetration or security hacking, like people trying to break those things. Sure. So, and you, you alluded to this with the, the, you know, zero trust point of view. The first point is that no system will be perfect, right? Like, I mean, we've got to acknowledge that. And no more than even a well-engineered car, there are flaws and tolerances for engineering, right? I think the first thing is, culturally, we need to move towards um, an understanding of privacy by design as a fundamental pillar of the software design and implementation process. So within SDLC, privacy by design is talked about a lot. Some engineers have read the like seven major cornerstones of what privacy by design means, but very few of them could cite them like that. And that should be a fundamental pillar of it. Like we we shouldn't be designing, before we ever write any code, we shouldn't be designing systems that don't adhere to the principles of privacy by design. That won't make a system safe forever into the future, as you said, because it'll iterate, it'll evolve, it'll be built upon and integrated with other systems. But if we assume that every product in market or every platform that's integrating with each other follows some basic codified standards 
of how it should behave, how they should interact with each other, and how they federate access to data within each system, you can make a much more, let's say, private by design or respectful. I think the, the term that a lot of privacy specialists talk about is a respectful system, one that naturally cares about or thinks about the user. The other side to that, though, beyond the sort of like seven point policies of privacy by design is fundamentally, if engineers aren't given new tools that evaluate the risk for them, because you said, how does an engineer keep up with this, right? Engineers shouldn't have to, not because they don't care about privacy, but there are lots of business requirements. Like, like you said, you know, HIPAA, Sarbanes, any of these things that you might have to think about. Engineers are trying to build products safely by, I think by large, most engineers care greatly about the quality of their work, right? That should be something we all care for. I think our job and the job of companies like Ethica is to provide better tools that make that easier. So for example, I don't believe that an engineer should necessarily have to be aware that there's some new addition or nuance to California privacy law or a change to the way PCI compliance was done for, for payment processing under Stripe, right? Like, again, back to that Stripe analogy, if you process credit cards with Stripe, you assume that Stripe has taken strong responsibility using, like if you use their hosted fields technology, for example, you're making a leap of faith and a reliance on Stripe and its engineering quality yep. that they're maintaining state with PCI compliance, that they're understanding the level of TLS that they're providing. And you as an engineer are implementing that in accordance with the guidance they provided. Privacy should be the same. It, you know, nobody should be rolling their own privacy solution. Nobody should be implementing something from the ground up. You should be relying on infrastructure that solves that problem for you so you can move quickly solving the sort of user-facing customer problems that you need to solve. All right. So that's, that's a great point. And I, I want to bring this back to like this RFP because it's a bit of a sidebar, but like, so when we were in, I've been in enterprise software before. And when we first went to the public service clouds and we would go fill out for RFPs, people would ask us like security and compliance issues that were very clearly, let's say originated back in the days of everyone keeping their own data center, right. Or keeping their stack in a data center and being in charge of their own security and privacy. And I used to remember thinking to myself, like, why, why can't we just send people the link to like, you know, AWS security? Why can't we send them the link to GCP security? <laughs> like, just like, I don't know. I don't know who we're competing against, but are, are they better than this? I have no clue. Right. Because exactly. <laughs> right? like sure. that idea that I'm just going to trust someone else to handle this for me. Um, totally. Because that's exactly what we did as a small company. And then I think big enterprises eventually took notice and be like, yeah, they, these companies probably do have the biggest security policies. Then they started asking us more about like how we handle personnel because then they started realizing the risk is the human aspect, right? Actually, you're probably your the human aspect is actually your biggest risk. You just takes one person that wants to download a customer list and sell it online, and that's you know you can't stop that, or you might not be able to stop it. Uh, but but exactly the, the 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 real sort of weakness in any of these chain of events is usually the human component, right? So the systems piece or the technology and infrastructure piece should be it should be possible to design away a lot of the inherent risk that is there, right? And again, relying on AWS or relying on Stripe or relying on a sort of well-trodden path of infrastructure that's existed for some time and is sort of battle-tested should be the default. No software engineer should be sitting there going, I'm going to build the world's next great social media whatever product. What I'm going to tackle now is privacy by design first, right? Like that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> All right, man. I'm starting to get what you're saying because like, just like you said, if you're building an application right now where you need to collect payments, you probably defer to one of the payment processors. Like, why would you like, oh, I'm gonna build one up from the scratch. Like that sounds For sure. nonsensical. You would never do that. No engine, like tomorrow if a VC meets with a startup and say, well, what's the holdup? Well, we're building our own payment processing gateway. I mean, <laughs> okay. Why don't you use something in existence, right? Yeah. There you go. So when you talk about, you know, I'm curious for yourself because this brings to a broader issue. Um, I'm sure you've seen have, or I'll ask, have you seen the new documentary movie, Social Dilemma on Netflix? Yes, of course. Yeah. You've seen that one. Okay. So there's a lot in the pub, like 
let's say non-developer community people want to know like is privacy ever going to exist again and i argue it can't because inevitably if you're using a piece of technology someone has to have a record of you like basically this idea of true online anonymity i believe it's gone do you see consumers wanting to get to that because what i'm getting at is this when there were breaches at let's say the hotel chains or like you know yahoo had a breach marriott had a breach target had a breach people were up in arms like you're like oh my gosh my information is now taken when equifax had its breach that was like you know it was the biggest news for at the time but now I don't know. I don't know if people like think of breaches that way anymore. Is it just like, ah, it happened? Like, you know, <laughs> they do, they, they do provide it hasn't negatively impacted them personally, right? Like that's yeah. when they, their tune changes. But I hear you. I, yeah, I guess the, what the point you're driving at is does privacy really matter in this like hyper connected world we live in, right? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Does it really matter? Is it even attainable? Like, or do you think people are just going to start loosening up and just being like, ah, forget it? I don't, it's too hard to do. So, no, it's a, like, it's a really, really good point. And I think some of this is on the cultural as well as the sort of regulatory aspect. So let me give you the like, very boring backstory to this. The US is one of the only countries in the world where privacy, and not, I'm not talking about data privacy or digital privacy, I mean like privacy in the historic sense of just wanting to be alone and keep myself to myself. And privacy is not a constitutional right. Like in most countries, and I'm not exaggerating, in most places in the world, privacy has been something enshrined in bills of rights and constitutional rights for countries for centuries. I mean, in France, I think, don't quote me on this, I might be getting it wrong. I think it goes back to the 1400s. I need to double check that or the 1700s. It goes back a long time. And so other countries have always had a different cultural attitude towards privacy, whereas curiously in the US, because it was the sort of leader of the, the sort of both industrial and technical, technological ages, has had a different view of the value of personal privacy, right, to, for the individual and the information they own. Because that, information had ultimately a marketable value as a good. And I think we can all acknowledge and see that the world is now hyper-connected and real privacy is difficult to achieve. The issue that we're facing, though, is a lack of deep understanding for non-technical folks, like people that are not here, you and I are the listeners on this, uh, of this podcast, their lack of understanding as to what they're giving up. And so let me give you real-world examples. The things that I, what I don't worry about in privacy is some spam or misuse of behavioral data for advertising. It's a pain for everybody. It's a frustration. It's something that should be regulated. There is no question. It's a problem. And it's where privacy, in many cases, started. The issues that we need to consider are how we police the ownership of data in the future as an asset or commodity held by a business that may use it in a way that we have not planned for now or in the future. So, you know, we all talk about Facebook being this huge data holder. We all forget that MySpace was the preeminent social media platform of the early 2000s. It disappeared in a puff of smoke and no one thinks about it. It was bought for $5 million. The value there was the data that was acquired, huge amounts of data. Nobody knows who uses it for what, not to sound nefarious. Nobody's aware of that. Nobody thinks about it. But that data exists somewhere now in a behavioral pot of gold that's being mined and taken advantage of. Again, reasonably innocuous because it's social media data. However, we know of health insurance providers that scrape publicly available information about users to understand their behaviors as it relates to their health preferences that might affect their eligibility for health insurance in the future. We know of programs and pilots in uh, developing countries looking at social media posts of people to look at skin exposure to sunlight to identify potentially early onset of cancer signs or cancer warnings that might screen them out of insurance availability. Yeah. All of that sounds like science fiction. It's very, very real. We all know the tech is pretty easy nowadays to achieve. 
Now, what we don't as average users understand is what we're giving up when we place content about ourselves into the public market and then assume that clever engineers and clever business owners are just by default doing the right thing with that information. I think that's the risk we misunderstand. Well, you know, what's interesting you mentioned that is like the data trading that happens on publisher platforms. So for, and for anyone who's not familiar, like let's use news sources, New York Times, CNN, those sites allow, for, they all do, they all allow for like basically, I would say the free trade of data on people and they sell it back. Like, cause uh, I know that a lot of different companies will, these companies are basically paying the publishers to be able to insert their pixels on these sites. And so they know like what you're reading, what you're into, like they're there for sale, Facebook, Google, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever. They're all trying to put it behind their garden, right? Where they're saying, Hey, no, the only way to use Facebook data is through Facebook pixel. And then so like, I, I don't think, yeah, to your point, the average consumer, I think they kind of know, but they have no clue as to what level of trading is happening For sure. and why these advertising platforms are getting so good at what they do. <laughs> There's no question. Like obviously the, the, the death, hopefully the imminent, relatively imminent death of the third party pixel is a positive for most, uh, from an engineering standpoint, it causes problems with sort of, you know, uh, cross-site security and, and uh, various issues f- for practical reasons. But fundamentally, as a, as a means to sort of look in on users or uh, match users across systems, the death of the third-party pixel is a positive thing. But again, average users don't understand the degree of sophistication that's achieved. Like most average users are unaware that there are businesses out there that acquire wholesale uh, credit card data, so purchase behavior data from credit card companies. It's a huge industry. Correct. And that is then enriched with online behavior data. So markers that identify you in the physical world, like purchase data with your credit card, when you go into a store or when you used to go to a store or a restaurant, along with what you do online, can now be matched to a very high degree of accuracy. It's a significant business for many large tech companies as well as many legacy financial services companies. Most users have no idea that that's happening. The question then becomes one of informed consent. So what I mean by that is, should people be better educated? Should they understand what they're giving up and what the consequences of, are of that, not just today, but potentially in the future, as that pot of data gets richer and more sophisticated? And the systems that are able to process it become more powerful. Are the risks going to become more, more of an issue for us? So here's what I want to ask you, because you also can experience this from the consumer side, because you being living in the UK, being uh, from Ireland, and also working in the United States. So tell us a little bit about from your perspective, because you obviously have a different insight on a consumer perspective, because you can understand maybe the tech behind something, right? Do you feel a difference in using products and digital services in the United States versus in Europe? Because Europe obviously has stricter laws than the United States. So like on a consumer side, do you look at things and you're like, huh, I wonder how they were able to know that about me in Europe because they have the GDPR. They, they shouldn't be allowed to know this, but I'm just curious from your consumer perspective, if you saw a difference. That's a good question, actually. Never, no one's ever asked me that, if I'm honest. So the short answer is not at the immediate superficial level. I, th- I think there are a few things you'll notice, right? Where everyone's famously aware that in Europe, you've got cookie consent banners. They're huge. They're right. They're, right. they're just, they're huge. They're <laughs> the biggest cookie. Literally, literally. <laughs> they take up the whole screen, man. They take, it's like 90% of the screen is like, do you want this cookie on your page? It's like, uh, I guess I can't see anything. Exactly. I can't see anything. And most average users have no idea what a cookie really does or doesn't do. And there's a huge amount of confusion, right? I think cookie consent banners as a product experience for the end user, for consumer, are terrible. They don't work. <laughs> the user doesn't understand what they're giving consent for. And in most cases, the businesses that have them are ju- just have them because of a regulatory requirement to do so and don't understand the underlying reason. But that's the most visceral or uh, visual thing that you can see as it relates to data privacy difference between Europe and the US. But even now, you know, with the advent of the CCPA in California, 
the number of businesses that contacted us over the last three months looking for a cookie consent banner. We, we don't do cookie consent because it's not a problem a business should worry about. But the number of companies that thought that the solution to the CCPA was a cookie banner. And we spent a lot of time just trying to educate businesses that cookie consent is, cookies are not directly mentioned in any major regulation. Uh, so cookie consent in Europe dates from a law before the GDPR in Europe called the e-privacy directive from 2011. So it's an old regulation. It still stands, but it's not, it's not directly related to the GDPR or CCPA. There's a lot of confusion on this. There's also confusion. People, people think cookies send data somewhere. I mean, you know this, cookies are text files. They don't send data anywhere. Pixels and uh, you know, JavaScript hooks, yeah. They can, yeah, they read, read the cookie. They say, now I know who you are. They read the cookie, <laughs> right? So this idea of cookies being the arbiter of all evil on websites is like a misnomer, right? Like they, ultimately, it's a text file and you can read the contents of it and do all sorts of things with it, right? And that has nothing to do with the cookie consent mechanism. So, you know, I, I think that what that represents is that there's a lot of education for the user, like the consumer in terms of what their rights are and what consent really means and what they're giving up when they do it and what happens with their data, right? Like what a cookie really does versus what, you know, a, a webhook might do. And, and of course, we can't expect our average users to understand that. Back to the car analogy, most people get in their car, turn on the ignition and drive. They never think about how it works and they shouldn't have to, right? The job is of smart engineers to make those systems safe and easy to use in daily life. Europe and the US are currently, there's a gap on privacy regulations, but it's narrowing very rapidly, right? There are 10 or 11 other states in the US with draft privacy regulations under review. Federal regulation, given the political climate at the federal level, is probably going to be a moment away. I think if you just speak to policy experts. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. It will happen, but, it's, it, but, it, but we're more than, I would say we're more than two to three years away from that. And so as a result, businesses in the US are going to have to contend with like state level regulations, like a patchwork of state level regulations for quite some time. That's even harder to do as a business. And it's even harder for an average user to understand their rights. Like, do I have different rights because I'm shopping on a store that has an office in California or Vermont versus being a resident of Virginia or North Carolina, for example? It's such a complicated thing for the user to understand or for businesses to operate in. I'm calling it right now. There's going to be a rise of litigation from just like people who take advantage of patent and trademark laws, right? Where they have a patent or trademark and they can sit on it for a while and then they see someone in violation, they can litigate and try to get some money out of them. There's going to be a, a rise of litigation inside of the US court system. I don't know about Europe because I think Europe's a lot harder to sue somebody, but inside the US court system, for sure, of people that just look for these violations of privacy laws and data privacy laws, and they're just going to come after companies and try to get paid doing that. That is going to be an actual business, I think. I don't know. It's, it's going to be scary, but it's going to happen. Oh, it, it, it already is a business. It's already a business. Trust me, in the two months since uh, the CCPA came into effect in California, that has already popped up as a business because something most people don't know. The CCPA gives you, it's a boring side edge to the law, but it's worth understanding. The CCPA provides a condition for what's called authorized agents. So an authorized agent is an independent party that can establish itself to get your permission so they can come to you and say, hey, do you want to give me your rights and I will file your privacy requests to you know, Amazon or Google on your behalf. And if they fail, I will then pursue them on your behalf for you. So this exists as part of the regulation, authorized agency. So a business needs to be able to accept a request directly from you as an individual or from an authorized agent on your behalf and then be able to meet that requirement. <laughs> this is, sounds so bad. It's good. It's the conditions of being in, in the tech business, you know, I think you know, this, is, this is something interesting I'll ask you as well. You know, one of the things that probably was really appealing between, let's say, 2005 till, let's say now, 
in the last 15 years of building a tech company was kind of like we talked about, like the number one, you can build and move, you can build fast and break things, right? It seemed to be okay to break things. There wasn't that many people to slap your hands, right? The risks were lower. The risks were much lower, right? So, you know, your capital investment was lower. Your ability to take on risk was high. You could skirt regulation litigation, right? Like you get a VC fund, you can just d- take a bunch of scooters and dump them in a city. They, they, <laughs> the city didn't even know how to like address that, right? I've seen numbers on, you know, prior to pandemic, business startups were actually falling. Like I saw entrepreneurship stats were actually diminishing. Like people, fewer people were starting businesses. But now the pandemic's here, of course, a lot of people are out of work. There are more businesses starting. But do you think these data privacy and regulation loans are going to have an impact on the you know, let's say the, you know, the two kids in a garage kind of romanticism that say, hey, we want to start a software product, but I just can't comply with all these things. I don't know how to comply with all these things. Or do you think that's where you guys step in and say like, hey, listen, we're just going to make it, we're going to continue to make it easy to comply because this is just now the way things are. And you, you have to use, if not us, something like us to just even get started. Yeah, absolutely, Albert. So the Concern you pointed out is one that's often been raised by sort of not cynics of data privacy, but those who are concerned about the potential competitive moat it creates around big tech, right? So yeah. the argument the argument goes like it protects big tech. That's what they'll say, right? Like yeah, Google and Facebook can comply with this stuff easily because Google and Facebook have got an army of lawyers and engineers, etc. And I don't mean to pick on them; I just mean big tech, like large engineering teams, large legal teams can comply with this stuff, right? And I think the the argument is uh, partly valid. The other side of it is all businesses, even those big ones, are finding it hard to comply with these regulations, actually. So the moat is, I think, not entirely substantiated. The argument is over time, of course, they'll find it easier. I think the, the latter point you make is also true. Businesses like Ethica, and not only Ethica, I think there's a whole bunch of platform-based solutions to data privacy, you know, engineering and infrastructure tools, some are ours, some are others, that seek to make it easy to sort of flatten that um, and, and sort of make it more meritocratic so that anybody with a great idea can move quickly to build a system that is safe by design for its users. Provided we can provide those tools to the market, I don't see any reason why data privacy shouldn't lead to just better systems for all users and a better outcome for everybody. There you go. Well, I appreciate you sharing those insights. Killian, so one of the things we always want to do towards the end of the interview is we want to get to know people a little bit better. Are you ready for some lightning round questions? Okay, let's do it. <laughs> Before we go, Got to read a note from the sponsor. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Customer 360 Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Lightning round. All right. Now that we know that you're not in New York City right now, we got to know. So tell me what are your favorite places? What's your favorite part of living in New York City? And then you also have to, of course, tell me about your UK place as well. Oh, man. But I, I don't know the UK very well. I know London or New York way better. Um, I'll do my best. Okay. Oh, okay. How, how, well, let's go there. How, how, how much time have you spent in New York versus, uh, I guess, Ireland now? The last 10 years in New York. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I feel like I knew, yeah, I know New York well. So what's my favorite part of New York? Um, I would say going, this is going to sound like a cliche, going for a run in the morning before work on the East Side River track, which is an athletics track on the East River. How early do you wake up to do this? Oh man, now I'm going to sound like a quintessential cliche. Um, I wake up at 4.45. Oh, so you described it like the Jocko, Jocko <laughs> willing and discipline equals freedom? Are you one of those guys? No, no. I genuinely like to get up and, and be running it at sunrise. That's genuinely what it is. That's good. How many miles do you typically do? Uh, not far, like five miles max. I'm, I'm too old five, to run far. Man, that's, that's far. <laughs> five miles is far to me. When you run, are you listening to, do you listen to books, podcasts, or music? Music, always music, and generally a very old, obscure electronica, bizarrely. 
which my, my entire team has called me out on as being weird and obscure. Oh, so your entire team makes fun of you for your music tastes? Oh, yeah. Do you still make them listen to it? <laughs> no, I never make them listen to it. But we have, we have a thing. We do team drinks on Zoom on a Friday. And, and they now have a, a music quiz where one person's the MC and plays songs. And everyone else has to guess what it was or the song is. It was my turn two weeks ago. It was a disaster. Uh, it, everybody was very, very, very disappointed in my musical taste. There you go. Were you just unable to reference any of the popular songs and artists? Absolutely zero. Like no, no <laughs> pop culture knowledge. Like absolutely zero. <laughs> you sound like me. I feel like I would lose uh, my, my, my company makes fun of me too. It's messed up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what about your phone? Do you have an addicting app on your phone? Uh, do you, is there any app that kind of pulls you in more than others? Um, I use a note-taking app called Bear, which I love just because it, it supports Markdown. And that just is obvious for me. So I got rid of all of the other like Evernotes and Note and all of those. And I use Bear for everything. I'm obsessed. Okay. I'm not hurt of Bear, but I'll have to check that out. Besides running, what other non-work-related hobbies do you have? I build vintage motorcycles, cafe racers. Oh, like Triumphs? Uh, like old Honda CB750s, BMW R650s. But I, I turn them into cafe racers for friends. So like buy an old bike and then rebuild the engine, redo the frame. It's like the most satisfying physical labor that you can do when you're not, you know, building software. Okay. So this is fascinating. So you're a gearhead and you only, do you only work on cafe racers or do you work on other bikes as well? No, b- bikes, cars, the, but the thing I do most regularly just because New York is hard to do cars, there's not a yes. lot of space, is motorcycles. So as some of the early members of the team would know when we started Ethica, it was a motorcycle in our meeting room, which I worked on for like a year for a friend. <laughs> Grease and all, oil pans yeah, yeah. and all. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It made a terrible smell and noise. <laughs> so do you ride motorcycles yourself? Yeah, uh, ride bikes on the street and used to race quite a lot with my brother. Uh, not so much nowadays, no time, but yeah. Have you ever been to the Isle of Man race? Uh, so that's like a huge part of my family's history and heritage. My dad loves it. My dad's in his late 60s, still goes every year um, as a marshal. So he works there for track safety. Um, yeah, it's a huge part of our life. Okay, so you've actually attended the race. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, and it is everything you've seen on YouTube. If you watch a YouTube clip of the Isle of Man TT, for anyone who's not familiar with it. Let's describe it. All right, listen, the people keep telling me that the world of IT is boring. I'm like, no, nah, it's not. They just, these guys all have interesting hobbies. All right. Talk about the Isle of Man. I know how I would describe it, but I'd like to hear, hear how you describe it. So the Isle of Man is what um, Irish people refer to as road racing. Um, the US, you'd call it street racing. But imagine guys riding motorcycles at an average speed of 200 to 220 miles an hour on what you would describe as a country lane with potholes, grass verges and ditches on both sides. And they are, so it's a 37 mile lap of a, an island. Uh, they'll do five laps of an island and they will average speeds of about 180 miles an hour on these country lanes, which means that they're traveling in excess of 220 on occasion. There are huge accidents, admittedly, um, and the fatality rate is grim, unfortunately. So I'm not sure that the sport will be here for much longer, but it is an incredible spectacle to see. You, you've never seen, if you watch racing of any kind on a track, or, um, it looks positively easy by comparison when you see these guys do this on the street. Okay. That was a very PG description. This race is mental. Okay. Isle of Man, <laughs> you got these guys ripping down on their, you know, sport bikes, crotch rockets, if you will. <laughs> I, I, I knew where you go. <laughs> Full leather, right? The lanes of these roads are abnormally narrow. We're not talking about a normal two lane road. Like when Killian's talking about like it's a country road, he's talking about like a country road made for vehicles sized maybe in like the 19, you know, 1930. Like these roads right. are tiny, like a, a Hummer ain't, doesn't fit on, you no, know, you couldn't have two not. Hummers pass. Like there's not enough space. No, 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 definitely no, not. No way. Right? No. Yeah. Not only that, it's got 
it's not a track. So there's like houses, buildings, brick, fences. Oh yeah. Right up against the street. And they just wrap things like a, a like a, a pillar for a, a, the entry to a house is just wrapped with two hay bales, two bales of hay. Right? <laughs> a couple of bales of hay to protect you. The curves, when you hit a curve, it is completely blind. So it is not like a track where you can kind of see you're about to do a horseshoe turn and it's going to turn and you can kind of like put your eyes on the position. I read an interview where the people like they have to basically memorize the track because this like blind curves everywhere. It looks like these guys are about to wreck at every second. It's not like a, a normal motorcycle. I feel like when I watch like MotoGP, I see they look dialed in. Isle of Man looks like their bike is on the on the verge of crashing at all times. So Albert likes MotoGP and the Isle of Man. So then we're we're kindred spirits. So yeah, so my brother's my brother's racing Laguna Seca this weekend. In fact, so your brother's ripping Laguna Seca this weekend. Yeah. All right, we got to tell all the IT people now, the tech people. Laguna Seca is a famous track in California, and it has this huge downhill portion they call the corkscrew. And if you watch that on television, I mean, it looks like a roller coaster drop. Like these bikes are going, you know, 180, 200 mile an hour. And it looks like they drop into the abyss and it has a curve as they go down it. So your brother has to be pretty good if he's going to handle that without, you know, going down. When he's not doing his day job, which, which is he's the global data protection officer at Twitter, of all things, <laughs> he, he's, he, um, he teaches people to race motorcycles. That's what he does. Yeah, for real. There you go, man. This guy's got great side hobbies. So good. So good. All right. One more question for you. What is the best advice you would give someone the first time going off and starting their own software company? Avoid the cliches of um, like, just follow your heart and do it no matter what anyone says. Most importantly, identify a problem that is poorly solved today or can be significantly improved upon. I think the mistake first-time entrepreneurs make is don't rely on data and just go on intuition or gut for a problem that needs to be solved. Test it and, and refine the idea and ensure that it is a problem worth solving with an addressable market. And again, that makes me sound like a, a financier or a banker, but that, like, if you want to build a scalable start, like tech company, a startup that's going to scale, you need to make sure it's a problem worth solving that people will pay for. That's the only thing, in my opinion, that matters. All right. I mean, Killing, you live, you're living proof of that, right? Because if you follow your passion, you'd be fixing bikes, but you're building software because it's got a big scalable problem. Exactly. And it allows me to keep building the bikes, right? So There you go. <laughs> All right. Killian, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. An absolute pleasure. Any last words for our listeners? Thank you, Albert. Thanks, uh, guys, for the, um, for the invitation. And of course, if anybody wants to learn more about privacy, feel free to get in touch with me directly. I'm just Killian on, on Twitter, or you can get me at ethica.com. Or if you have a new bike that you need souped up, give him a call too. He'll, uh, he'll, fix, that, he'll fix that for you as well. Or just, just watch the videos of the Isle of Man TT on YouTube. Do that. You'll, it'll make your day. There you go. Help Killian out. Keep the Isle of Man alive. Keep watching the videos. Keep watching the show. The show must go on. Hey, listen, you said it. That's very dangerous and it's, you know, it's kind of grim, but it's also elective. I mean, no one's being forced to do it. These guys want to do it. Oh, they adore it. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah they want to do it. So yeah, let's, let's be clear here. So keep it going. I think the race should keep going. I'm glad you shared all your wisdom and insight with us today. And thanks for being on the show. Pleasure. Thank you, guys. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.